You know, one of the lovely things I see in our Baptist movement of churches each week when I go around and preach is to, in the foyer after the service, I love it when families bring their children and include their children in the uh, engagement of our work, particularly our child sponsorship. So keep that in mind. Those of you who are parents, you've got your kids here today, bring them with you to the table and the child can help make that choice in terms of who you're going to sponsor and uh, so that the family can own it together. So it's not just mum and dad coming home with a, a profile and saying, hey, kids, this is what we're doing now. Include your children in the decision uh, to sponsor someone too. And it's quite a lovely thing that I notice in our churches each week. I remember it was about 30 years ago now where the issue of poverty hit me fair and square between the eyes. Quite surprisingly, I wasn't expecting it. We were on a trip to America and stopped over at the Philippines on the way through to do nothing more than just the tourist thing, to enjoy another country's culture. And so here we were. This was back in the late 80s where the country under the leadership then of Ferdinand Marcos was experiencing a a fair bit of financial stress. They were on the tail end of a pretty severe economic recession. Although you wouldn't know because the place was a buzz. You had to sift through the hustle and bustle of a capital city where everyone seemed to have everything that they needed. But here we were on this tour of central Manila. And just on the edge of the city, I witnessed this huge discrepancy between the rich and the poor. We travelled through this suburb, which literally had huge homes and grand palaces on one side of the street. And on the other side of the very same street, you had tin sheds for homes, kids walking around aimlessly in the street with hardly any clothing on, obviously lacking nutrition, kicking around screwed up bits of newspaper for makeshift soccer balls. And I couldn't understand how this could be. How could there be such a contrast in the very same street? As I looked at the rich side of the street, it was as if God was saying to me, hey, Mark, that's where you live. That's your side of the street. And I remember feeling a little guilty, a bit of reconciling to do with God. I wasn't sure what to do with the guilt even as I looked at the poverty stricken. As a growing Christian, this rocked my middle-class, eastern, suburban, Melbourne lifestyle. Watching those families on the poor side of the street both challenged me and fascinated me. For the first time in my life, I got a very different perspective on God's world. And the unease continued as we travelled through other regions where people were living in waste dump areas for home. We went up into the hills where people were living in substandard conditions, beggars in the streets, unmade roads, an obvious lack of hygiene. My eyes were now open to a very different world, to that which I had experienced to that point in my life. I wonder if you've had an experience like that in some shape or form where the issue of poverty hit you between the eyes. It was a moment, an experience, a visual aid maybe, where it rocked you just a little bit and had you questioning perhaps your own experience of life, where the reality of poverty actually confronted you, where it moved you in some way. You see, Scripture presents a vision of the world as a place where all people can share in the abundance of the earth and also in the comfort, nurture and support of a loving community. Unfortunately, poverty deprives people of those things. Certainly deprives them of the opportunity of experiencing those things. Extreme poverty is disturbing, but it's even more disturbing when you're confronted by its reality as I was all those years ago in the Philippines. Poverty is a part of our world. It is what it is. It's not God's intention, but due to the inequities of this world and the selfishness of many nations and people groups, God's world is hurting. But if you listen just carefully enough, you may just hear the cries of the poor 
over the cries of your own flesh and the cries of our own self-centred society in which we live. And let me say categorically, the hunger, the pain, the deprivation, the injustice, it is real. Although we can become a little desensitised to it, if we open our, our eyes and our ears and most importantly our hearts, you cannot be helped but be gripped by its reality. And the reality is this, the stats here that you may have seen these at different times over the last few years, but these are the current stats today. In the world today, over 800 million people lack access to sufficient quantities of nutritious food. Over 1 billion people lack access to clean drinking water. More than 2.5 billion people lack access to basic sanitation. Hundreds of millions lack access to basic medical care. Every day, hundreds of children in poor countries are still dying of preventable diseases, and more than 2 billion people lack access to decent housing. In other words, one in every six people live in some form of an urban slum. But what about here at home? Many of you are connecting with people right throughout the week who are suffering at a whole variety of levels, whether that be financial stress or unemployment or loneliness or family breakdown or domestic violence, and the needs range from food, employment, housing, educational resources, rental assistance. People who are often looking not just for a helping hand, but someone to come alongside of them and to show them some dignity, to show them some self-worth. You know, one of the great things about being part of a church community that we're a part of here is that we get to be attentive to each other's needs. There are times where some of us will fall on tough times, where we feel marginalised, where we're unemployed, where we're going through an impoverished season of life. great thing about a church community is that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who come around us and sow into our lives when we're very much in need. But then we extend ourselves beyond that, don't we? Into our local community where God has placed us where we become his hands, his feet, and his mouthpiece as we sow into the lives who are struggling, people around us. It's overseas, but it's also on our doorstep. And God is asking us to listen, to hear his heart for the poor, and to hear his call to bless the poor. Now, we can shut ourselves off from this call. It's not hard to do in the society in which we live. I've done that plenty of times in my life, shut myself right off from it. Or we can embrace the plight of the poor and we can respond with mercy and compassion, which is exactly what Nehemiah did in the reading we're going to have a brief look at this morning. Just before we have a look at the reading, let me give you a small bit of context. See, Nehemiah was the, the third great leader in the Jewish restoration. First of all, we had Zerubbabel. He comes along with the group of the first exiles, brings them back into Jerusalem in 538 BC and oversees the building of the temple. Now, 80 years after that, you have Ezra. He comes along with a whole lot of sweeping reforms based around the ministry of God's word, and some good things happen. But in times, things degenerate a little. So 13 years after Ezra comes Nehemiah. Nehemiah was burdened by God with the conditions that Jerusalem were experiencing at the time. Nehemiah was needed. The Jerusalem wall was still in ruins, and the king gives Nehemiah permission to rectify the situation. So he conjures up a plan to rebuild the city walls because he knows that the rebuilding of these walls will be imperative to the survival of the city and the thriving of the city. And so with that, he provides the sort of quality leadership that the Israelites desperately needed at that point in time. And there's much to learn from the story of Nehemiah. So many grabs and themes that we could take from the story. But this morning, I'm going to reflect briefly just on one small element 
of the story that came about during this building project. You see, while the, the rebuild of the walls was in full swing, an ugly internal problem arose. Let's pick it up in chapter 5 of Nehemiah in verses 1 to 5. It should be there on the screen for you. I'm reading from the NIV here. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as their fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. It's a key word, that one, powerless. It's often those who are stuck in poverty. It's often how they feel, uh, powerless to do anything about their situation and their circumstances. So what you've got here is you've got the, the poor of Jerusalem rising up in protest against the rich cousin, the oppressive practices of the rich cousins. They're complaining about food shortages and hunger and excessive borrowings and how some families were driven to the extreme measures of selling their own children into slavery. And of course, it still happens today around the world, doesn't it? The people were saying, quite rightfully so, enough is enough. Someone please help us. These were difficult times for the people of Jerusalem. The place was a mess and fortunately they found someone who was willing to listen. Obviously in the form of Nehemiah. We pick it up in verse 6 there. When I heard their outcry, says Nehemiah, and these charges, I was very angry. Back to verse 9 there. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses and also the usury you are charging them. The hundredth part of the money, the grain, the new wine and the oil. See, when Nehemiah becomes aware of the plight of the poor, he becomes angry. It's what you would define as a righteous anger. Now, what infuriated him was not that they were going through tough times. or All economies go through tough times. But that some people were taking advantage of those who were desperately in need. And so he gets proactive. He challenges, does Nehemiah, their selfishness. And he gets to restoring equity and fairness. And he does so with a huge dose of humility and compassion. And Nehemiah here provides us with a great example. When you are confronted with the cries of the poor, he listens, he discerns, and he responds. And it's a little threefold model that, that I and, and we can easily follow in our own lives. Listening, discerning, and responding. Let's have a very quick look at those three things. See, amidst the busyness and focus work, Nehemiah still had time to listen. You see there in verse 6, I heard their outcry. In other words, he really listened to them, which is not always easy to do when you've got a set agenda, when you're busy, when you've got things on your to-do list. If you're a little like me, maybe a little practical, outcome-orientated, task-orientated, you might have your to-do list for the week, you've got boxes to check, and, and nothing's going to encroach in my week. Nothing's going to distract me from what I've got planned for the week coming. And when you've got that approach, one of the hard things to do is allow, allow distractions to enter into your week. It can be a good thing. 
but can also be a bad thing because sometimes those distractions are godly distractions that we need to hear. Nehemiah, I mean, you could forgive Nehemiah for ignoring the distraction. He's a busy man. He's got a huge project to complete. He's got a wall to rebuild that the nation is depending on him. Huge group of people that he's managing. The spot fires that go with leadership. Yet Nehemiah listens amidst this incredible busy work that he'd been given to do. Sometimes we're too busy to even notice, to even hear the cries. Sometimes we can be a bit desensitised to the whole thing too. See, in the age now of social media and visuals that are there every second day or every day for us, we've got reporters all around the world telling us about the injustice. We see the images of inequality and, and, and just the way people are treated around the world is abhorrent. We see it all. We see so much of it, I think it's easy to tune out, isn't it? We desensitise ourselves to it. It's almost like it becomes fiction to us because we get so used to the images, we get so used to the stories, and we switch off. Nehemiah refuses to switch off. He's got this huge project to complete, yet he understands the cries of the poor need attention. So then he goes to discernment. He hears their cries, listens to their complaint, and has to work out whether this is a fair complaint or are they just whinging. Are they just sort of half-glass-empty type of people? Because we know we've got people like that that we hang out with sometimes that are always complaining. Is this group of people sort of like that? No, he listens to their complaint and he says, you know what, this is a fair complaint. This is not fair, what these people are experiencing. And he's challenged by them. But even today, this is a challenge for us, isn't it? Because there's a constant cry from so many individuals and charitable organisations for more of our hard-earned. Can I or should I respond to all of them? Is the cry for help an honest one or am I being taken for a sucker here? What do I do with this? It's important that we're careful, that we're really prayerful when responding to the cry of the poor and discerning what specific action God is calling you to as individuals, as a family, but even as a church. I know you're very prayerful in terms of where you engage at this level because we can't respond to every presenting need. The need is not always the call. But what we can do is grow a heart of compassion, grow a heart of love and mercy so that we're ready to respond when God does call and presents a clear opportunity for us to sow into the lives of the marginalized and the poverty stricken. And here's the thing. If you're wondering about whether I should or shouldn't engage with those who are very much in need, defaulting to compassion, love and mercy will always have you more closely aligned with God's heart than defaulting to cynicism and judgment and me. Can't go wrong by defaulting to compassion, love and mercy. And if you get that wrong just occasionally, you know, well, we'll so be it. But I'll tell you what will, cynicism and judgment will do to you and do to your heart. It'll harden it. And it's not a great place to live. He listens, he discerns, and then he does the third thing, which is probably the hardest thing to do, he responds. You can listen, you can discern and get a real sense that, hey, here's an opportunity for you to engage and God's equipped you to engage with this person or this family or this community to help them through at their time of need. But the courageous thing to do is to respond, and that's what Nehemiah does. In verse 9 there, he shows a real reverence for God the way he responds. In verse 9 we read, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God, says Nehemiah, to those that are afflicting? 
So Nehemiah here is suggesting that the people's selfish actions are actually a sign of disrespecting God. I hadn't picked this up in this story until I went through it again. It's quite interesting. See, their reverence towards God would be seen in their compassion and their help for those less fortunate. In other words, how we respond to the plight of the poor is actually a measure of our reverence towards God. I wonder if you've ever seen it that way. That's what that story here indicates to me. How we respond to the plight of the poor will actually be a measure of our reverence towards God. And as he re- I love this about Nehemiah. As he responds, he does so really, really practically. Now, it, notice he doesn't put down his tools. He has got a vision that God's invited him to fulfill. He's got a, a wall to build, people to manage. He doesn't put down his tools on the back of the cries of the poor. He keeps rebuilding the walls. You've got to make sure you pick that up. I'm not saying, hey, drop everything and move over here. He's got a vision to fulfill. He's going to do that. But he's going to do it differently now because his heart's been changed. He's going to do it with a merciful edge, ready to engage in the plight of the poor, listening to the distractions that might still come while he's working. And he'll be attentive to those distractions. But he'll still keep building the wall at the same time. See, ministry in the church doesn't stop as we attend the poor. You're involved in some wonderful cutting-edge programmatic ministries here in the church that are making a difference in people's lives and in your community. And they're to be applauded and should continue. But as we do them, we approach our ministry with a little more of an open gaze, ready to engage with those who are in need at the same time. I call it a peripheral vision. And uh, in sport, as you heard earlier, I'm the, uh, the chaplain at Essendon, and we've got a captain. Actually, it's probably a, an, there's another captain that probably personifies this more than our captain, Dyson Heppel, who's a, one of these players who is not particularly quick, but he has a, seems to have a lot of time to distribute the ball out in the field of play where it's chaotic and everything. Now, unfortunately, I'm going to actually go to Collingwood here, and Luke's here. I, I shouldn't do this because Luke's going to love it, but I'm going to talk about the Collingwood captain for a minute. His name is Scott Pendlebury. And I don't like Collingwood at all. Actually, I'm glad I don't have to work with Luke anymore. Okay, uh, Tim, over to you. You know what it is. Yeah, it's Collingwood banter. One of the reasons we're going to Nepal in October is it's not the football season. I have to put up with his Collingwood banter when we go. But the, their captain is fantastic. He's, he's, a, he's a wonderful player. And if you, if you know your football, you'll see on the field of play, things are going on everywhere. Scott Pendlebury, it's like everything happens in slow motion around him. He's got all the time in the world to distribute the ball at a whole variety of angles. Why? Because he knows what's going on around him, even without looking over there. And he just steps through traffic. It's incredible to watch. Wonderful to watch. I reckon there have been times in my life where God has said to me, Mark, open up your gaze. Open up your spiritual peripheral vision. There's so much more around you that you're missing out on. Why? Because your tunnel vision, you're seeing what's just coming at you, what you've got planned in the week to come. But there's so many things that God is doing around us that he's inviting us into and we're the ones missing out on the, on the reward of that in many ways. The fruit of that. Open up your gaze. So much going on around us. I think as a church and as individuals, we often need to do that because we can become a little stuck in what we're doing at times and not seeing what God's doing in our wider community where he's already at work and inviting us to be a part of his redemptive mission. In his response, Nehemiah, he gives us a great example to follow here. See, Nehemiah refuses to live the life of luxury that he was entitled. In his position, he could have lorded over those that he was leading. Instead, he hosts people at his dinner table, refuses to use his power, refuses to make money out of his position. He's more interested in God himself, revering God, 
and is more interested in God's most prized possession, people. That's what's driving Nehemiah. It's not the wall that's driving him. It's his heart for God and his heart for people. And this model of response, I could stand here today and give you many examples of Jesus in the New Testament, his engagement with people. How often do you read that Jesus had compassion on them? Jesus had pity on them. He was driven by this incredible mercy for those who were on the margins, who were, who were being cast aside in society, who were not being loved on. And he does exactly what Nehemiah does. Jesus would listen where other people couldn't find anyone to listen to them. He would listen. He would discern. And he would respond in compassion. And of course, the ulterior motive in Jesus was not just to make them physically well, but through his physical touch and his interaction, his relational engagement with them, that they would become spiritual well and experience eternal life. Look at the way those who had offended in our story this morning, those that treated the poor harshly, look at the way they respond. It's a wonderful response. They respond positively and remorsefully. Some of us, when we get hit between the eyes and accused of the error of our ways, we'll make excuses or we'll run a mile. Well, at least this gang in this moment responded remorsefully. Verse 12, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. At this, the whole assembly said amen and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Now, this is the sort of response God is looking for in his people today, for Australian Christians, we must view our response to the poor as an integral part of our Christian walk, of our discipleship. It's word and deed, not one or the other. Word and deed coming together, making an impact. Proclamation and demonstration coming together, making a huge influence in God's world and in a world where more than 1 billion people are living in extreme poverty today the way we respond to this is central to how we fulfill God's call in our lives to love our neighbor and we are seeing progress this is the good news that you don't always hear and there's wonderful news you see since the year 2000 where Australia was involved in the millennial development goals I've seen 1 billion people worldwide lifted out of extreme poverty that is good news that is a good story Overseas aid has seen child mortality halved in the last 20 years. That's astounding. 20 years ago, 12 million children under the age of six were dying of preventable diseases. Today, it's 5.9 million. Still way too many, but that's half a man. How good is that just in 20 years? 90% of the world now has access to safe drinking water. You couldn't say that 20 years ago. Things are happening. And churches like Kilsyth South Baptist and others like you and Christian organisations have been very much at the forefront of seeing that trend line starting to go in the right way. But now is not the time to become complacent because there is still a long way to go for all people to experience the fullness of life that God created and intended for all people. And there are stories of transformation all around the world just waiting to unfold. You've heard one of them already with young Shanto on the screen there. Let me just finish with another small little story that relates to some time I spent in Nepal. It's a practical story, but it shows again how our engagement with things like community development overseas does make a difference. So a few years ago, I visited Nepal with Baptist World Aid. It was one of the, uh, the first times I had a really strong engagement with them. We went to Kathmandu. You see, Nepal is one of the, the poorest countries in the world. Kathmandu is the capital city of Nepal. And it's dirty, it's dusty, it's chaotic. You've got exposed wires everywhere and bamboo scaffolding. And it's just a dirty 
chaotic place. The irony being that there's this huge advertising billboards all around their streets promoting wealth and success, which is so far from reality in Nepal. Particularly in the more remote and regional areas of the country where we work and do a lot of our work over there. I spent some time in such areas and found my way into the mountains of Lalitpur. And this is one of the mountains here in this mountain range of Lalitpur, about southeast of Kathmandu. Beautiful scenery as you look at that. Hey, in awe of God's creation, you can't believe that poverty lies within that mountain range. You could have a, a week's retreat there, a quiet retreat, and uh, just enjoy the ambience. But really, the ambience within that mountain range is poverty. And we came across this family who'd been living in a makeshift humpy for years and years. The daughter was always sick. They couldn't afford to send her to school. They couldn't afford the medical supplies to make her well. Life was really, really tough for this family. Food on the table was scarce. But things really changed for them when they became recipients of a Baptist World Aid community development project. And this is what you need to understand. When you give it Christmas time or give it different times of the year, these are the stories you're actually helping come into being through your contribution way back here in Australia. So what happened is the parents of this child joined a self-help group and were taught how to rear chickens and to run a business effectively and profitably. And so on this day, we were approaching their home and we were expecting to see just a dozen chickens out the back and a couple of small little chicken, you know, wire coop, that sort of thing, little chicken coop. To our great surprise, we came across two huge sheds full of free-range chickens as large as this auditorium. There was a couple of them. And with the success of their business, they could buy land, they could erect their own home, they could send their daughter to school, they could afford food, they could afford medical supplies for her daughter, they could then teach others in their community how to run businesses like they were running as well. And I have many stories like this one as churches have grasped the opportunity to change a life. Also in Nepal, I could give you stories of empowerment where villages have been lifted out of poverty, where we've seen outcomes, we've seen baptisms happen as well and churches being planted as well as a result of the work in there. It's wonderful to see. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. You see, few of us can contemplate hungry children, weeping mothers, despairing fathers, minimal resources. But when we allow ourselves to and become just a little bit vulnerable and strip away our own excessive needs, you can't help but ask, in my privileged position, what can I do? What can I do here in this space? But when faced with the magnitude of world poverty, I know I hear it from people time and time again, but really, what difference can I make? Really, what, what will my contribution really do? Let me go back to that image, that next image here in the pile, the next mountain. Remember vividly standing on top of that mountain in the pile on this particular morning, and we, we only work with Christian organisations on the ground, the indigenous organisations, and I've talking to one of our workers there who works on the ground. And I said to him, mate, how do you do this? You get up every morning with a spring in your step. You know that there's poverty right throughout this mountainous region. Doesn't it overwhelm you? It must depress you. How do you do it? He goes, Mark, well, you know what? I'd feel pretty drained if I looked at it that way, but I don't look at it that way. I'll wake up and I see it as a privilege to sow into the lives of those who need Jesus and who need practical help. And so I see an opportunity to transform lives, to invest in people's lives. And what we do is we attack this mountainous project one mountain at a time. We'll work in this mountain. And once that mountain has been lifted out of poverty, then we'll move to the next mountain. And then we'll go to the next mountain after that. And then we'll go to the next mountain after that until the whole mountain range has been lifted out of poverty. My invitation to you today is to join us at Baptist World Aid, 
But more importantly, join our redemptive God and see the opportunity to affect change. Whether that be one mountain at a time, one community at a time, one family at a time, one life at a time. Maybe it's one shopping trip at a time. And you can respond in a whole variety of ways. On this Be Love Sunday, come and take out a sponsorship. Change a life, change a family, but change a community at the same time. Shop ethically when you go out to those shops, as Josh said earlier. Now think through your purchasing and really what's happening down the supply chain as well with that purchase. Advocate, speak up for those that can't speak up for themselves. Give generously to someone in need, locally, globally, when God places it on your heart. And importantly, read the scriptures. Because when you read the scripture, you see God's heart. Rick Warren said this, Now I've got three advanced degrees. I've had four years in Greek and Hebrew, and I've got doctorates. How did I miss 2,000 verses in the Bible where it talks about the poor? How did I miss that? I mean, I went to two different seminaries and a Bible school. How did I miss the 2,000 verses on the poor? As you move into this week ahead, take some time, won't you, to listen to God's heart. And sometimes that takes diligence and discipline to drown out what's going on around us and listen to what God is saying and hear his heart. Scripture shows us a God who sees the poor, who hears their cry, who's filled with compassion for them, is outraged that the injustice is visited upon them and is determined to secure justice for them. I trust that you hear this call to bless the poor and join our compassionate God in reaching out in mercy to those who are in need. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so very much for the blessings that you bestow upon us that come in so many and varied forms. But God, would you forgive us where we take those blessings for granted, where it becomes all about me and storing more in my storehouse with very little thought for those around us, particularly those who are in need. Would you help us to grow a heart for the poor, to open up our spiritual peripheral vision opening up the invitations to join with you in the work that you're already doing around the world in our our local community. That we might have the courage to step into those situations, into those people's lives, to be your hands, to be your feet, to be your mouthpiece. To sow with generosity. God, I thank you for Kilsyth South Baptist Church for its global focus to unrich people groups, to the impoverished. I pray that you continue to bless this church and grow this church, not just in number but in heart, and grow its heart for the poor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.